0: Hi, I'm Julie Wilkinson and I'm a Chartered Management Accountant and I'm excited to be launching the Build and Exit podcast. This podcast is for business owners and entrepreneurs who are looking to expand their business portfolio by acquisition or at some point in the future want to exit their business. We're going to bring real life stories and experiences of people who have grown by acquisition who have exited their businesses and other areas of business such as funding and cash flows. So there'll be lots of opportunity to learn different areas of business and how you can, in the end, transition your business from a lifestyle to an asset. So look forward to seeing you soon. Hi, and welcome to the Build and Exit podcast. I'm Judy Wilkinson, and I'm the owner and founder of Wilkinson Accounting Solutions. I started the podcast off the back of the work we do at Wilkinson's because we help entrepreneurs, investors, and business owners with exit planning and acquisition strategies. And I realized there was quite a gap in the market of Um, entrepreneurs they're actually understanding financial statements and financial information so obviously impacts valuations and due diligence etc. So I'm really pleased and excited to have Fiona Hudson-Kelly today as our guest. Hi Fiona.
1: Hi Julie, thank you for having me today.
0: Thanks for coming. I actually think Fiona's really inspiring especially as a woman so a bit of a background of Fiona. Um, She's actually owned three companies Has actually lost a company, which she thinks boils down to probably, if she's honest, not really understanding the financials at the time, but has successfully sold two companies. Uh, One she sold for $8 million and the other, well, let's just say it's a life-changing amount. Um, What's interesting is she's an angel investor now has done around 750,000 in 23 over several companies. So I definitely think for people looking for funding, looking to plan their business and obviously sell, Fiona's going to be a massive help because there's obviously lots of experience that she can bring to the table. So uh, hopefully I've done that justice, Fiona, and I'd love to hand over to you. you. (laughs) I'd love to hand over to hear a little bit more about you. Yeah, so
1: I I guess I'm a a poor kid made good, (laughs) Came from a fairly impoverished background, Uh, left school at 16, uh, very uh, disengaged with education, could not see the relevance of it at all, having come from a family of two highly high academic achievers, um, but fairly dysfunctional as people. And um, I got an apprenticeship at Rolls-Royce at the age of 16, a commercial apprenticeship, and it was life-changing for me. And I realised what I could do with education, learning and development, and I've been an avid, lifelong learner, um, doing a master's degree at the age of 50. <laughs> now signed up for my PhD in 2024 and many things in, the, in between. Um, so education was a real big thing for me. I started my first business when I had my second son, didn't return back to work because there wasn't really any flexibility. And my second business was an IT training business. Um, and I had that for... Uh, 16 years, and I employed over 20 people, Uh, feel that I did make a classic mistake really Julie, um, in not understanding um, the numbers. So we would have, for example, um, year-end accounts, not monthly accounts, and we would um, wait for the accountant to produce those accounts. So we were always looking in the rearview mirror, didn't really understand the difference between Revenue and profits didn't really understand where the profit was coming from in terms of which product lines, which customers, etc. And um, that was a harsh lesson because I lost my house. I had personal guarantees to the rent on the buildings. I lost my house. I was a single mom with four young children at the time, including a small baby. Moved us into rented accommodation and, and started again in my, in my second business. Um, my second business, this time, I decided to use other people's money, um, certainly learn a lot more about about um, the mechanics of accounting and finance, which I'm happy to share, uh, Julie, if that's relevant at some point during this conversation of what I did learn and how I learned it. <laughs> um and i bought in a lot of venture capital funding so when i sold that business i sold that business um, for eight million dollars five million pounds i owned less than five percent of that business at the end so my third business i decided to i started when i was 50 10 years ago i decided not to use other people's money and i bootstrapped it So I would go out all over the country, delivering strategic workshops, marketing workshops, picking up the checks from that, getting my son to take them to the bank so that we could start to outsource um, the development overseas to create a product. And that product was hugely successful. And I sold that business two years ago for many tens of millions of pounds. And um, we had a very... um, tight business we had 53 people a great leadership team and I was able to um, walk away from that business with a full cash exit.
0: Wow I mean that's a lot of experience isn't it into um, three businesses and what do you think the difference was how did you feel differently depending on when you did the second business with all the venture capitalist money versus when you sort of did it I suppose a bit more independently on the last business. (sighs)
1: I guess it was, I was curious because I hadn't taken any funding in the first business because it wasn't available. There was no such thing. It was just as the internet was coming along. So there's no such thing as Dragon's Den, angel investors, equity finance. It just was not heard of. so I was curious to understand what that experience was like. Um, I was on a program at Warwick Business School, so I was identified as a as a high flyer in this business in this uh, this this second business. And during that process we had um, venture capitalists come in and talk to us and it's the first time I understood what VCS were, what venture capitalists were. It's the first time I really understood about what a capex table table was having been a sole. Uh, owner of the business previously, um, so I was curious to know the journey, and uh, it was pretty brutal. <laughs> I'm not going to lie; oh, no. <laughs> it was pretty brutal. But it, I learned so much, and understanding the the, the financial statements and the mechanics of finance was um, absolutely critical to securing that that venture capital funding. And I went on to win a huge competition called the Million Pound Investment Challenge um in the in the midlands uh, to secure a million pounds worth of funding we didn't get all of the million pounds um but we got a good chunk of it and it set us on a a trajectory really where we were chasing investment more than we were chasing revenue and it felt as though we were having a lot of um people with in leadership and management roles without really having a lot that was being done. And that probably does a disservice to that business because, as I say, that business successfully exited. But for me personally, I got a nice car out of it.
0: Yeah. But I think, I mean, you've done a lot um, and maybe you don't really realise because you're quite calm and you're saying, oh, I did this. But, you know, to lose your house and things on the first business and to come back to build these businesses, whether you – got a lot out of it or not how I suppose if we step away from the finance of that I mean how did you manage that mentally what what has been because I think that's quite important like how do you manage challenges because it sounds like you've had a lot of them
1: (laughs) I have had yeah thank you Julie I I have had a lot and I think it was only really when I sold my last business and it's like I never had to worry about money again and I'd fulfilled many of my dreams that I'd set out as a young girl to do that I probably realized how hard it was (laughs) you know it's kind of like when you're going through it you have to be resilient, especially when you've got a young family. I've got school fees that I had to pay. I've got four children dependent on me um, emotionally, um, financially, um, and in every, every other way practically. So I wasn't able to indulge in how I was feeling um, and, and and dwell on it for too long. I really had to be resilient and pick myself up and just get on with things. And it was only at the end of it all when I look back and I think, wow that was that was a pretty rocky road that was a heck of a roller coaster um yeah. how did I keep myself going during 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 those those times um I think I've got a really good connection of close friends and family and I think my kids like my kids now my son's 40 next year you know they've been my whole uh north star for everything that I've done but
0: they're also my best friends and my best allies. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, I know. It sounds amazing. And, you know, we've talked a bit about this offline. Um, one of the things we want to get out of this podcast today really is financial information and the importance of it. Obviously, I bang on about it yeah. pretty much in every post. <laughs> People probably get sick of hearing <laughs> me. But it's good to hear, you know, and we've talked that you actually think you tripled the value of your business by truly understanding your financial information I mean, I'll just give a bit of a view of what I see. So because I see a lot. I mean, we probably see about 100 balance sheets a month. Typically, we get told, oh, my account's brilliant. They sort everything out and they understand their accounts. Yeah. What I actually think that translates to is I get a good tax saving and I do understand my profit number because our experience is – if we ever challenge any numbers on the balance sheet as search, there isn't really a reply. There is they don't really understand it. And so that's the bit that I see as a gap is really the balance sheet and people really understanding the difference probably between profit and cash. I yeah,
1: mean everyone and says your cash is
0: king. And the yeah.
1: relationship, Julie, as well, between the PL and the balance sheet. Like you say, they they challenge on the balance sheet, they struggle, but actually it's directly related to the PL of what you the movement of what you might choose to take out of the PL and put on to, as an intangible asset on your balance sheet. And just understanding those mechanics, I think, is is rare and I'm so important.
0: So what part what part of it made your business worth so much more when you understood what what do you think it was what how how did you do it
1: Yeah, I think having a good um, accounting practices and not just management accounts in the rear view mirror for quite some time. So it was actually in our culture. We knew our numbers. So we know, you know, it's five million pounds, five million pounds revenue, four million pound costs. And we'll get to our 1.8, 1.9 EBIT from that. But we knew those numbers and we knew exactly in terms of our costs. If we didn't hit our sales projections, we knew which costs we could trim. So we understood the difference between overheads and direct costs we understood the difference between variable costs and what milestones then we had to trim so that that's the starting point is you know whoever comes to look at you they're going to look under the hood intensely for the last three years and the following two years so having good understanding of your numbers and being able to stand up in front of them and your leadership team and explain those numbers historical numbers current numbers and projections just gives you that credibility you know you're going to you're not going to have your local accountant that comes in to do due diligence you're going to have we had ernst and uh, ernst and young accountants we had a team all wilkinson of accountants. or accountant. well
0: wilkinson accounting
1: <laughs> yeah well i'm dread having yeah. you julie <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know so so there's there's no and um, there's no place to hide so what what, that was the starting point of increasing our value and hitting the numbers. You know, the next right. starting point of increasing the value was understanding the mechanics of accounting, how to account for income and costs in the period that it's, it needs accounting for, so that you could really have clean statements to defend against valuations based on deferred income, for example. So deferred income is you might invoice 30K, you might put that in 30K through your book, but actually that might be 12 months worth of work that you're doing or exposed to do is then um, making sure that you haven't accounted for all that 30K when you've invoiced it and got paid for it. You've accounted it for the period that you're doing the work. If you haven't done that, have a jolly good reason why you haven't uh, put that in as de- deferred income. And so that again, it's it's credible. Things like um, understanding what you can move from your P and L to your balance sheet as an intangible asset. It helps increase the value of of the business, but you've got to be able to justify and understand what accounting rules you're using and why you're moving them to the intangible values and what depreciation rules you're then going to apply. And it was all like, when I set out, this was all like a foreign language, the jargon. I found it really, really, really difficult to do. So I'd always made sure I got a finance manager in place to do it. And it was only really with the third business that I thought I had to bootstrap. I thought I need to learn this stuff. So um, I did my MBA at the age of of, of fifty. We had a finance module in the MBA. It was an examination, um, so <laughs> you had to know it all. And there was a lot in there that I didn't understand. I had uh, extra lessons from my accountant and his company um, while I was doing that. Tu- doing those tutorials, I got that exam. I then went on to, in halfway through the business, then went on to become a chartered director with the Institute of Directors. So I did the um, finance for non finance managers program again. Didn't really understand a word of it. Um, I went away on a residential course to learn it. I had to do that course twice because it was so alien to me. Um, it helped when I had more lessons from my accountant because this time I was able to use my accounts to understand some of this, the, this terminology. And when it, I thought it was never going to click into place. I think it's like, you know, when you first learn to drive a car, you never think you're going to get all the gears and the mirrors and everything. And then you do, and it just becomes second nature. It was like a light bulb went on yeah. once i understood it on my own company accounts not just case studies that we'd we'd had at uh, in the mba once i understood it on my own company accounts it was yeah like a light bulb moment and i'm not an accountant i'm not a finance manager but I'm good enough to understand whether a business is doing well or not doing well. I'm good enough to download abbreviated accounts off for competitors from the company uh, website um, to to understand how well a competitor is doing. And I would just urge everyone, you know, whatever age and however long you've been in business um, to, to learn this stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, I definitely see it. I mean, what I personally, I mean, because the thing is, the reality is a lot of people might not have time to go and do the full course. And I don't think um, necessarily everybody needs to do a course. But I think the problem is, is what information they're getting or what I see. Because I would say, typically, you don't need a 100-page report. You know, when you get the management accounts, it's what information is coming alongside that. Because interestingly, when I set up Wilkinson's, one of the reasons I set the company up was because I did a survey and I asked 20 businesses what did their accountant do for them and 100% only saw their accounts once a year. And, mm-hmm. and that was between yeah. 50, about businesses around 50,000 turnover. I think I went up to about 20 million. I asked like randomly. But then I asked accountants like what they offered and I was told nobody valued management accounts. You couldn't sell it. They didn't understand it. And I think... The problem is um, the experience in the accounting industry because that's why I started it because obviously I'd had 20 years in finance working for corporate and I'm a chartered management accountant by trade. So I could see we had a skills gap. And I think what you learn from corporate because sometimes it can be a bit overkill in corporate. But what you learn from it is actually, as long as you get useful information, so management accounts with true numbers, like you say, using a cruel account and making sure things are put in the right place. But more importantly, like the, the wording, so like, for instance, if we were going to work with a seller, we'd say, get your management accounts, but then create, well, what I would call a bit of a, a seller's pack. So you'd initially call it a board pack. And I suppose eventually that would expand probably into your seller's pack. And that has to have the key information, like it has to have the journey of the company, you know, the, the results, like the risk management strategies, the corporate governance strategies and things like that, about how, and how you're mitigating it. And if you have all those things, then it can be explained to the owner, then they basically, you know, get a lot of the information that they need. Yeah, and to me, it's,
1: uh, it's I would say that financial skill and marketing skills are the two skills that every startup founder should have and if you haven't got the time to learn these what else are you doing why why aren't you making the time to learn these you know if i if i can do them i'm quite severely dyslexic and find the numbers difficult um if i can do it anybody can do it and i wish i'd done it years ago and it It doesn't just make a difference in terms of understanding the management packs that you supply, which as you say, Julie, what you can do for a customer, which is fantastic, that's fantastic service, because you'll only look in the rear view mirror. The point of understanding about the financial health of your business is that it enables you to make those strategic decisions, which product line to stop, which customers no longer to service, which market opportunities to pursue, you know, without having that understanding. How can you make those strategic decisions?
0: Yeah, management accounts aren't always enough. I know from my, I mean, I could see and give hundreds of examples, but I remember I worked with a company that um, in the end put about 200% on their bottom line or forecasted 200% purely because they took, when they were offline on their marketing, so they are kind of doing it a bit offline and brought it into real reporting so they could actually track the metrics. Because like examples I've seen is where, People like have all their product lines into one sales code, for instance. So it's how you're using the information as well. Cause like you can have one sales code or you could have every product line on a separate sales code. And then but then how do you apportion your costs across those product lines so you can actually see all service lines what's making money? Because I've seen it in service and products where actually often things make it a loss, but it's hidden within the mm. overall numbers because other things yeah, are overriding the loss. The loss whatever. making. Yeah, and they don't have the cost. They're all good, good enough. Like, uh, um, you know, we might call it activity-based costing, where you like split your activities across your product lines. They don't have um good enough reporting on that to actually. Why do you um, think recognize. that is?
1: Why, why do you think that is, Julie? Do they, do they? Do you think that they're too small, or is it too hard, or? Because you're, you're right. Well, it's rare, isn't it?
0: Well, I think if I'm honest there is a lack of knowledge in the accounting industry being provided by accountants mm. on this thing, which I'm not blaming them, but I, th- what my experience of the research I did is a lot of accounting firms are quite siloed in the experience. So, you know, they've always worked on bookkeeping and tax. It's a, it's a mm. different skill. Mm. You know, mm. I had 20 years in corporate. I worked with every supply chain director throughout all of the commercials in my corporate world. And there's certain things you can't teach, you know, you can do qualifications and learn tax rules. You can't always teach, you know, the mm. experience. So I think there's probably yeah. a gap. And so people don't know to do it because unless it's a service, I mean, I don't really believe business owners themselves would probably, even if you learnt it, How some of it is quite complicated to actually implement because sometimes the system itself doesn't actually report it. You have to do some offline or use different systems that integrate. You know, so as an example... You know, if you've got two companies and you pay an insurance premium from one because you get a group thing, the system doesn't automatically split that insurance to apportion it across the right entity. There, there isn't a system that will do that unless somebody told it to do it. So then who yeah. does it? Who has those conversations? And that, that's what I think is people don't invest in the right finance support mm.
1: um,
0: to actually do the right accounting in the first place. Mm. Or they don't know to because they're not advised to.
1: Mm, yeah. Whereas you could actually probably have a a less expensive resource by having uh, you know a bookkeeper to do some of that. Um, important reconciliatory work for you cleaning up. You can have an external accountant that can have a really uh, good role within the company, Um, providing the founders got the basics. And, you know, I'm not, as I said earlier, not a finance manager, no way, not an accountant, not a tax advisor, but understanding enough to make sense of the information that I'm being provided. Yeah. And make sensible decisions. I'd love to see yeah. people like yourself, Julie. I know you do a lot of this this work. I'd love to see more founders getting educated by yeah. people like yourself that can explain things in layperson's terms. Just because you understand all of this complexity, they don't need to understand all of that. And like you said, many accountants might be able to do a really good job but can't explain it. I mean, I was fortunate. My accountant's great. He gets the whiteboard out and explains it all to me and his team do, but... You know, they're not that often able to do that, are they? And I think that's where you really fill that gap, Julie.
0: Yeah, and I think people just need to invest. I mean, I would say if anyone's over half a million, they should be thinking, because there's a bookkeeper and there's an accountant, but there's a lot of roles in between, you know, like a finance manager or CFO be sitting in between of those two things. It would be a different role. I think people aren't investing in enough ongoing support because really... You probably do want someone that's in someone financially involved in your monthly meetings. Like you want someone to be helping you look at the information, understand it and strategically use it to make decisions going forward. You know, that's what finance teams are there for. I don't think businesses invest enough. I don't know whether it's because they don't think about it. They're too busy to think about it or they don't want to spend the money. I don't know. Um, But they also make mistakes where they just think, right, I'll hire a CFO or a FD, however you know the terminology as, because that's great, but the reality is a CFO can't really do a lot without a junior team, because if you're paying your no, CFO yeah. to process transactions, so you need a mix, you need a mix of skills that can do the right things for you.
1: Yeah, and we never had a CFO. We had a really good finance manager. Um, it was pretty self-sufficient, ran the payroll, ran the books. We had a really good external accountant that used to come to our board meetings, but I understood enough I understood yeah. enough um, at this stage not to need a finance manager. And I didn't do any finance. I just read the and interpreted and questioned and used the information that was presented with.
0: Yeah, I mean, but it sounds like your external account was really good. And probably behind the scenes, he was playing a part of a role that CFO might, it might not have been that role. But what you've explained he did for you probably is similar to maybe what a more senior financial advisor would do in a company um maybe he just didn't have maybe he just didn't have the actual role but maybe he was supporting you behind the scenes
1: oh i'm sure so when we were going yeah. through the due diligence process we had to realign all our management accounts to our statutory accounts and the account of things like holiday liabilities etc um so we had to have a much uh, bigger set of accounts and he stepped in and provided all those templates
0: yeah so yeah so he kind of did certain roles that probably the finance team would do anyway uh, yeah
1: same for marketing you know I asked somebody yesterday who I won't name that was looking for some investment what the cost of acquisition was and the average subscription was 30 pounds over three months the cost of acquisition he'd got his first 500 organically didn't have a clue and I just said stop stop developing you know yes you're going to raise a couple of hundred k's on crowdfunding because it's relatively easy to do so but just just stop and prove that hypothesis that for 30 pounds subscription you can actually for cost of acquisition is still going to make some profit and i I think they're the questions it's knowing it's once you understand the basics of the financial statements and mechanics it's understanding then how to write, ask the right questions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've seen people, I've actually had people say to me, um, Oh, my marketing doesn't work. I don't expect, but I just carry on doing it. And I'm like, why, why would you carry on spending? I mean, we do all this reports and we have it in our own firm. So we have weekly cash flows that look out 12 weeks ahead. We have KPI reports. that look at our lead generation, our client conversion, um, you know, sort of our longer term cost of acquisition. We have profit per customer. So we, obviously we're developing all our reporting because we're still a relatively new business, but that's what we're bringing in. So we can see what is the profit per customer. And this is, these are the types of things that we would help people implement is what I would call more KPI reporting. Because actually management accounts are okay, but they don't really mean anything without any context um, behind it. Because at the end of the day, management accounts are just numbers. Unless you have the story behind those numbers there isn't there, you can't really make any decisions from it so that's what i find anyway so we have all those reports within our business and it's interesting because obviously we buy accounting firms we've bought an accounting firm and and i would and most of the accounting firms that i have seen don't have management accounts themselves really so oh yeah i've seen loads of them that don't have it wow. um yeah, so it's that's really interesting. interesting yeah yeah
1: yeah. Why do you think that is? I maybe mean, it's
0: they so busy d- doing stuff. That- yeah, I don't know. I just think, um, I, I don't think a lot of, I, you know, maybe some of these aren't actually offering management accounts. But what's interesting is you get, a lot of people get told, oh, I do management accounts. But one mm-hmm. time I saw us, because we see a lot of like, obviously accountants and that's through selling, because we see a lot of sellers and acqu- acquirers. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, when we see management accounts, so somebody said to us, oh, they were doing the bookkeeping, but they didn't have management accounts. This is the accountant. And we are like, oh, it's okay, though. So if you're doing the bookkeeping, we could at least run the profit and loss and balance sheet from the system. And they said, oh, no, because we don't do management accounts, we just post it anywhere. It's all at our year end. So I'm like, that isn't what I would – that, to me, the posting of the transactions isn't management accounts. The posting of the transactions yeah. are, is bookkeeping the management accounts is then reporting on that information. So therefore, you know, there's differences in opinions of then what management accounts is, because I don't really mm. believe management accounts is just get, running your p and balance sheet. It's the context of the reconciliations behind mm. it.
1: Yeah, and I think what happens when you go through due diligence is at this point, you're normally in an exclusive offer. So you've normally got a number, and the idea is from the buyer's perspective to get that number down from the seller's perspective to keep that number that they've agreed as close to. And I think the confidence in the buyer when they're dealing with the shareholders, and the majority executive directors that are running the business as well, and hearing that they understand these numbers and these numbers yeah. are clean, and it's a well-run business. Whether that's finance, operations, or HR, HR and finance were the two the two sweet spots in IP when we were bought. When we went through due diligence, it just gives them that confidence. Um, yeah, and it it keeps keeps your valuation. You know, it can it can make a huge difference on your valuation and also your exit strategy for the for the owners.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've seen balance sheets drop by way over fifty percent because of inaccurate transactions. Yeah. Hundreds and thousands, yeah. even millions, millions of um, numbers yeah. just sitting there unreconciled. But in terms of these, yeah. like intangibles, I've seen that as well, especially in tech. Um, have r and D company. So often the R and D companies, especially on a sale, are looking to do their adjusted EBITDA, so you know adjust their profits for the, the R and D price. aspect. Um, and they, so we got asked to do some work, which they thought was about one point five bill. So you probably look at about four mil in valuation when you sort of times by four. Um, but what had happened was because they didn't have any management accounts and they'd use statutory accounts, the um, the valuation on the the actually in the stat accounts the account had already put it to the balance sheet They'd capitalized the r&d so actually those numbers that 1.5 billion wasn't even in the PL. so there that changed their that lowered their valuation by nearly 4 million just from not knowing not even knowing not even having to understand how to move it or how to account mm-hmm. not even knowing mm-hmm. it was in there and mm-hmm. i think that's what you what you're talking about isn't it like making sure that yeah. you're understanding and understanding what's going on yeah. yeah so
1: yeah and and I think you know for many owners that whose vision is to start a company build a company and then get the value the wealth from that company in return for the hard work and risk they've put in over those 7 to 10 years you know it can be very disappointing i would imagine if you get to the end and that valuation adjusts in the way that you've just described all because you haven't bothered to make the time to understand these things.
0: Yeah, I don't bother to learn it. So, I mean, we are coming towards the end of the podcast now. It's been really interesting, but I, I'm just curious to talk about this angel investment that you do now because I think it'll be in, it'll mm-hmm. be useful for people. Yeah. So, obviously, you're yeah. investing in other businesses. So, to yeah. give people a bit of a tip, if they're looking for investment what would you recommend I mean. them to do? <laughs> <laughs> what, would, what would you recommend what would you recommend businesses do whether it be startup or non-startup you know just want investment what would your tips be if I people are looking for angel investors so doesn't? i think
1: i think go and talk to angel investors informally if you can to start with so that you understand um how they how they value business and Different people look for different things. I have my checklist. I feel like I'm a Deborah Mead, and I have my checklist um, of boxes that have to be ticked first, which is different from somebody else. But if you can just go and have a friendly chat, you'll start to get some ideas of how an investor values your business compared to how you might value your business and what they're looking for. So... That that to me is where I I would go. And that's what I did when I was at Warwick University Business School, is I actually talked to the investors. They happened to really like what we were doing and then invested and won the challenge, et cetera. But initially, I just went and knocked on the door and had an informal chat. What sort of businesses do you invest for? What would you look for? What are often the negatives in um, a business? What helps valuations? What helps? what, What turns valuations down? And there's um, there's loads of networks, especially, um, you know, in the main cities in the UK. The UK ecosystem for angel investing is really vibrant. There's so many different networks. There's platforms like Cedars, uh, Crowdcube, um, Entrepreneurs Collective is a really good um, UK organization. There's business angel networks that have events. Even local chambers of commerce will have kind of like... Um, Pitching events where you can pitch to potential um, investors. Um, the less formal you can do it, and the more you can do of this, the better you'll get at it. Can I talk a little bit? Can I mention my book? Is yeah, okay? yeah, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> so, there's a book that I've written called "How to Grow and Sell Start a Startup," and I've, I've. Um, sectioned it into three areas, the startup stage, the scale up stage and the exit stage. Um, and there's lots of uh, contributions in here from other entrepreneurs that have successfully exited their businesses also for many millions of pounds and their little stories in there. And, you know, have a have a look at that and have a look at it from especially in the, the uh, exits chapter have a look at what is due diligence what are investors looking for because you're nowhere near that if you're at the start of that journey julie and you're you're looking to get some uh, seed funding to get going but it gives you an idea of what it is that they're looking for you to where, where it is that you they're looking for you to go how are they going yeah. to get their money back what are they looking for yeah
0: brilliant and coming full circle
1: back to the accounts
0: so where is the
1: back to Amazon.
0: So it's all Amazon. It's on and is it in Amazon. audio? Is it audio as well as partback or just paperback?
1: No, it's Kindle and Paperback. Um, we are going to do an audio. Um, but the publishing company, the right Book Company, um, offered to do the audio with a, a different narrator. And I said no, I want to narrate it myself. Um, and I'm actually going traveling now for a year, <laughs> 10 months. <laughs> I'm going to be volunteering in Africa and Nepal shortly. So I will, it's something I'll do when I come back.
0: Oh, well, I've just climbed Kilimanjaro. Yeah, I really so, enjoyed that. I did that with my son. Son, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So it's very good. Oh, yeah. well, thanks so much, Fiona. Um, it's been You're really welcome. good. And, um, yeah, I just want to say thanks to all our listeners. We've actually just nearly hit 2,000 downloads. We've only had been going 14 weeks, so we're doing quite well. That's
1: um brilliant, and if,
0: uh, So if anyone's got any, I suppose, episode topics they might like to hear about, you know, just drop me a DM on you know subscribe to youtube or drop me a message on linkedin um, but yeah do hit the subscribe because it helps a bit more people find the channel and we'll see you again soon so once again thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast i hope you found it useful if you think there's anyone else in your network that might benefit from our podcast then please share it with them either just click the link and send it to them or send it in a facebook group or other social media channel Don't forget to subscribe so other podcasts come to you directly as and when we launch them. So I'm really looking forward to seeing you next time. We've got some really exciting things coming up and we'll see you again soon.